This is Respecting Health. Hi, I'm Rod Pawlowski. Well, I know it's February, but Happy New Year. I hope it's a happy new year for you. There's so many things we're being asked or forced to stress about. It's February, and just now I'm wishing you all a happy new year. So I guess you can tell I'm not stressing about getting an episode out every day, week, or even month. And I hope that's okay with you. I'm trying to find great topics, and I would rather put together occasional episodes rather than feed the great algorithm in the sky. I'm frequently finding myself on the edge of what to do. So on one hand, as I build these episodes and prepare to publish, I'm interested in finding out how to ensure that more people hear about respecting health and the idea that our fundamental values have so much to do with just about everything humans encounter. And it's amazing what you can do with technology today. There are plugins, for example, uh, when I'm writing the, the piece that goes onto the website, and they watch over what I write. And they attempt to make helpful suggestions that are designed to enhance search engine optimization. And at first, I found myself kind of playing into it, and I would add words here and keywords there, and it'll continue to make suggestions like, you need to repeat this phrase four more times in your first 500 words, or that description has too few words, or it doesn't include a list of keywords, things like that. So on the other hand, I realized that the, this help keeps me from writing in my voice. I was writing to the algorithm. And if I completely write to the algorithm, my ideas become lost. It's like having your boss stand over your shoulder while you type, watching every word, criticizing, editing, judging. And I actually worked for someone like that, who literally would stand over my shoulder while I am writing. And you get to the point where you're, you, why am I writing this if you're dictating how I do it? I am not here to be your hands. Why don't you do it? I didn't like that, and working like that ruins my train of thought. Still, in the world of pretty much everything online now, volume counts more than quality. So to pump out more volume, the quality, in my opinion, usually suffers. If you're writing or speaking to an algorithm, you do nothing more than feed the need for more of the current tread, trend, uh, or, or whatever's in demand today. So in order to be popular, one must mirror everyone and everything else. So here's your dilemma. Be unique, but conform. So in this episode, we're going to examine something similar, but with huge impact. Now, there might also still be this nagging algorithm, but the algorithm reflects the values we hold related to global health. How is global health represented via images by people and organizations that operate along a really broad continuum that ranges from, hey, everybody, let's save the world to let's see how much money we can make. And of course, there's unique combinations of these extremes. Well, my guest in this episode is Asmita Sharani, who wrote with colleagues a piece called The Use of Imagery in Global Health, an analysis of infectious disease documents and a framework to guide practice. The article was published a year ago, but it's still important because it led to another bit of interesting research, which I will get to in the next episode, and which you'll hear referenced during my discussion with Asmita. 
Asmita Charani is an associate professor at the University of Cape Town, where she investigates intersectionality and AMR, or antimicrobial resistance. And in the UK, she's an honorary reader in infectious diseases, AMR, and global health at the University of Liverpool. In addition, she's a visiting researcher at Haukeland University Hospital in Bergen, Norway, adjunct professor at Amrita Institute of Medical Sciences, Kerala, India. Asmita is involved in mentoring and supporting clinical pharmacists across different healthcare settings and economies in implementing antimicrobial stewardship interventions. So this time around, we're digging into bias found in global health imagery and its implications. That and more in just a moment. Welcome, Ms. Mita. Thank you for joining us here on Respecting Health. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on this uh, podcast, um, Rod. I, I'm curious, could you just describe in a real general sense the issue that your research addressed? And uh, in the, <laughs> this is all about the use of imagery in global health. What's this all about? Yeah, so um, I work in area of infectious diseases, focusing on antimicrobial resistance. And my area of work is looking at behavior change. And so I'm invited to give a lot of talks and presentations all the time about my research. And um, I work with colleagues in in many different countries and settings. And um, so across different cultures and in a very multidisciplinary, multicultural teams. And we were invited by um, colleagues to give a presentation on my research to East African audiences and colleagues from WHO Afro. Um, and the invitation came to us through a society I work with in, in Europe. And um, we prepared the slides, which was around behavior change in antibiotics uh, prescribing in hospital settings. And the WHO took over our slides and said that they have to apply their branding. and. When the slides came back to us, there was a couple of images at the beginning and end of the slide set, which was my my research that I was going to talk about, which I felt had no relevance to the subject matter. And at the same time, um, it was problematic because I was presenting this to colleagues in East Africa as someone who at the time was working in, um, in the UK. And the images, I think one of the images was uh, a group of uh, women, I think in Nigeria, holding candles and singing. Uh, and I really didn't understand the context. And I asked my colleagues and they said, it looks like a group of women going to church. And I felt very uncomfortable in using images that had no relevance to the subject matter to audiences, uh, almost like exoticizing people from different places, especially when you're presenting as an outsider to a culture. And um, I raised this with the WHO and their feedback was that this is the standard imaging that is used in global health for them. And they didn't move remove the images from my work. And I really got took umbrage with that. And I thought this was really inappropriate because I am the person who's speaking. It comes across that it was my choice to, to use these images. So I presented our experience to a group of students I was teaching at the time at Imperial in London. They were medical students in their Masters of Public Health training. And two of the students and I decided to do a study. And we got together with colleagues in South Africa, with Professor Mark Mendelssohn, with Professor Shea Abimbola in Sydney, who's the editor of BNJ Global Health. And we decided to look at 
uh, to collect data on how we use images of people in global health so that next time if this has happened we have evidence to show people on why it is inappropriate and actually what good practice should be so you can say we were triggered to do this this is way out of my research i don't look at how you know representation and imagery it was but we were triggered to do it from bad poor practice so it almost sounds like um, some, I'm not going to make a blanket statement, but some organizations might use this type of imagery to serve themselves rather than the global health community um, or even cultures or individuals. You know, I, just, I can't even blame any given organization. I think it is a culture of practice that has become the norm over time. And it has roots in where, you know, if you think of where global health emerged from, um, as a as a concept, and also it's the organisations are so vast now. So, and and this is something we have learned through the process. So even if we were to approach an organisation and and get promote them to do things differently, is who do you go to in the organisation? You know, there are comms teams, there are advertising teams, there are all these different entities within organisations now that are that are have a role in optics of the organisation. It's it's a very it's become so inherent in the way we practice that we deal a different hand when it comes to how we represent people based on where they're from, and it's something that we had had sort of an inkling that is happening, but we didn't have the evidence to demonstrate it. And now we were able to collect the data and to illustrate that we are actually applying different levels of ethics, or you know due diligence and um, sort of code of practice, depending on where people are from. And that's something that we need to change. Do you know if anyone has ever looked at this issue before and done research? Not in the way that we had. People have talked about the lack of representation, for example, of black skin in medical training. Uh, you know, um, and there is there is somebody, I'm, I'm so sorry, the name now escapes me, but there is a very good was at a time medical student who took this on board as a project. And now there is a Instagram page, Black Skin Matters, which um, teaches, which pro provides images to teach people about, you know, for example, how a, a skin reaction looks like on different skin colors uh, or, or an allergic reaction or Stephen Johnson syndrome, you know, different skin tones will have very different reactions. And we are only training people to only look at one color of skin. So people have looked at that. Um, there has been a lot, there has been a lot of work around equity and global health, but specifically on how we represent people, um, Within the subject of global health, no, there hasn't been. So you decided to collect data. Um, how did you go about doing this? And what kind of criteria did you use to evaluate what you found? Yeah, it was very tricky because, like I said, none of us are photographers or communication experts or ethics uh, experts, even ethicists. Um, but we were triggered to do this and we decided that we're going to look around and see what existing guidelines there are. So we first decided to only look at images related to infectious diseases, focusing on vaccination and antibiotic resistance, because global health is so vast as a topic. We had to be um, selective and narrow it to our own field of expertise. And then we uh, looked at, okay, so what kind of um, materials should we look at? If you look at the internet, it's just infinite. There's so much out there that we, we couldn't, um, again, narrow it. So we decided to look at 
key organizations that are active in global health in relation to infectious diseases. And we identified documents that they produce as policy documents or reports or advice that they give out or recommendations uh, related to antibiotic resistance and vaccination. And we only looked at documents that were publicly available. So we looked at the websites of the organizations and the documents and reports that they produce. And we included documents that had images of people uh, and we then had to select the images, all the images that depicted people in these reports. And then we had to think of how do we analyze these images? What standards do we use? We looked around. There were um, guidelines for photographers and photographers without borders. And there were a couple of other organizations that had produced guidelines for use of imagery. And so we used these existing guidelines and our own standards that we developed on looking at how images are relevant, whether they are true to what it is they're depicting, whether there is ethical uh, standards, whether the dignity of the people who are depicted is being respected, whether it's a true representation of what is happening. Um, and then we use this, this standard framework um, to look at each image and discuss whether it stood up to uh, the framework that we had developed. I, I like the criteria that you started working from, um, looking at the relevance and uh, integrity issue, uh, consent and yes, representation. Sorry, yes. um, exactly. Those are really good starting points. Can you give me an example or our listeners any examples of what some of those might mean and what might violate some of those criteria? So if we look at relevance, we found that there was a lot of use of images because, you know, we're looking at global health, infectious diseases and antibiotic resistance. And we found many um, reports or organizations use images without providing the contextual detail of what the image is, what it is depicting, who is in the image. So the good examples were people give a story of the individual that is in the image, what is happening, what is the environment and why is this person being depicted? But what we did see is a lot of irrelevant images. So, for example, if it could be a, a, a report on antibiotic resistance and antibiotic consumption, there would be an image of some children in a village with no context of why we are depicting black and colored children consistently and repeatedly when we're talking about antibiotic resistance or antibiotic use. And we saw a lot of overuse of images of children. We found that the images, and when it comes to um, intrusiveness and inappropriate of, inappropriateness of the images. Um, we found a lot of images of children that um, were, or women, um, that were in very candid um, situations, whether it was a, a cot in a hospital, whether it was a woman breastfeeding, whether it was uh, people in, in daily activities that had nothing to do with health, often without any evidence of consent. And these were problematic because working in healthcare in the UK, um, we are never allowed to take candid images of the people that we provide care to. There are strict laws that protect the rights of patients to dignity, to respect, to privacy. And we felt a lot of these were being undermined when we were showing images of people from low and middle income countries, as if we're applying one set of rules to high income settings and another set of rules to low and middle income countries. 
Um, and we also saw a lot of the issues around consent, particularly images of children, uh, was that there was no explanation. There was often no guardian present. Um, and this was problematic, particularly for children who may be vulnerable, need there needs to be very strict guidelines and and you know um basically we should not use images of people in vulnerable or compromised situations and patients receiving healthcare fall within that remit uh, it, it kind of bears into exploitation um and trying to um engender pity um from situations where people should actually be protected and they're receiving healthcare so you would never have an image of a child in a hospital bed um in a high income country used um, without due diligence and consent and some degree of anonymization of the image, whether they cover the eyes or the face. But we didn't see this in lower middle income countries. And we also saw a lot of over-representation of women and children when lower middle income countries, um, individuals from lower middle, middle income countries were being depicted. You just used the word pity. And there was one paragraph in your article that struck me uh, as quite powerful because you delineated um, the difference in, between pity and evoking empathy and demeaning versus empowering and commercializing versus representation or representing. And those are really uh, very opposite ends of a really wide spectrum of emotions. And yet we're using imagery, which is an extremely powerful learning uh, method and and people pick up on that and it and and very subtle messages come through images. Um, this is a really powerful way of reinforcing something that is contrary to um, the ethics of where you're heading with this. Precisely, and you know what what really um, was triggering for me is when we saw images were being used to depict in the very few instances that images were being used to depict high income settings, whether it was a healthcare environment or an outpatient clinic or just, just a non-healthcare environment of an individual. Um, often they're staged. You can clearly see it is an, it is a staged environment. It's very sterile um, and actors are being used. So we are respecting the privacy of the individuals, but when we see the same, environment being depicted from lower middle income countries is candid images of real life. We are intrus intrus intruding into the private spaces of private individuals and using those images for purposes that they probably will never be made aware of. So there's no consent being taken. And there is a power dynamic and hierarchy at play, which is also often not considered. So if a photographer with a UN badge goes into a refugee camp, they go with authority and power. And they take an image of a woman and a child, or mother and a child, in whatever environment they're in, um, without taking consent, without speaking and engaging with those individuals about what is going to happen to their image, without giving any compensation to them for that image and how it's going to be used. It's a huge problem because those are all the things that when we put research um, uh, applications through high-income countries, we would have to tick all of those boxes. So... That's one of the problems. The other problem is this, this thin line between global health and photojournalism. And I think people often cross it without realizing. Um, in journalism, you can take images of any setting, whether war zone or 
trauma and it is used for different purposes. That we are not photojournalists. We are scientists, researchers, healthcare workers to provide services to our patients, to the communities that we work with. And I think often that line is blurred and people cross that line and take photos of instances where they shouldn't and use those images in a ways that shouldn't be used um, because we haven't been giving clear guidelines about our roles and responsibilities in how we depict the individuals that we work with. And we hope this got this framework, which is only the beginning, by the way, I really have to emphasize that we never developed this framework that this is, that's it, you know, we've, we've solved this problem. We haven't. Um, this is just us going into the dark and trying to do something, but it is really important we build on this, that this needs to be validated. We need to make it accessible in ways that those individuals who are decision makers for commissioning images in global health, for briefing photographers, for going out in the field and taking photographs are able to refer back to this and take some lessons about the considerations that need to be in place when we interact with people, particularly when there is a power asymmetry that is happening. When you go in with a position of power and a badge from the UN or the WHO and, and interact with people who are there because they are supplicants, because they need aid, they need care, they need medical situation in vulnerable situations. And they may not be able to give consent in the same way that a patient is able to give consent in a hospital in London. So, you know, these are the things that we need to bear in mind. How does consent vary? What are the steps for consent that need to be different when you're in a refugee camp versus when you're in a hospital in a in a safe environment? And I don't think we've given enough consideration to these matters. I think the phrase power asymmetry is something most people probably don't think about uh, when they're doing their jobs and they're trying to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish on any given day. And just thinking about that and being aware of it is probably enough to start making people more likely to look through this framework and start asking these questions and improving the situation. Exactly. It's about understanding that in, in any interaction, the positions of privilege and disadvantage uh, that different people hold and how that will sway their interactions and the decisions that they are able to make and decisions that they are allowed to make. And I think that's really important, and particularly in global health, particularly when we go into situations and we interact with people who are vulnerable for whatever reason, whether it's because of uh, their health issues, because of socioeconomic status, because of their identities, which is so layered based on race, on ethnicity, on genders. So all of this needs to be taken into consideration. And, you know, um, I'm just thinking back on, on some of the issues, some of the things that came to light when we did this. For example, the other issue is that we, the images that we looked at give only one side of the story. So in global health, there is this pervasive idea that low and middle income countries need aid and help and that people from high income countries can go and provide the help and make things better. And of course, that's not true. Um, and what we observed is that we also do a disservice to communities who are vulnerable in high income countries. If you look at global health in general and the imagery and how we depict vulnerability, we are very 
good at sanitizing the inequalities that exist in high-income countries and hiding it or not discussing it or representing it in the right way and highlighting or um, exaggerating the inequalities and the issues that exist in non-middle-income countries. And I think that is problematic. So if I look at the UK, child poverty is huge at the moment. Uh, there is, for so many, costs of living has pushed so many people below the poverty line. If you look at the US, the opioid crisis is a huge problem. And yet we don't discuss these things. We don't discuss inequalities in our own societies in the same way that it was, that we discuss inequality that exists in other countries. And that's something that we need to think about ourselves and um the disservice we're doing to, to the inequality that exists in our own countries. It's someone else's problem. We don't have that problem. Yeah. Well, as you started doing this uh, and looking more at the imagery that you've discovered, um, what was your reaction? Were you surprised at the pervasiveness of the issue or was it less than you feared? What was you and your team's reaction as you started to really look at this? We talk about this in the reflexivity statement at the end of the paper that we have published because we're very well aware that we were triggered to do this. And therefore, we came in with a bias. We came in with the assumption that we knew that people in lower middle income countries are inequitably represented in global health. That was our premise. And, and we proved that. Um, so there is an element of bias to our work, but we tried to do to eliminate as much bias as we could through the framework that we developed, through validating our assumptions that we were making, um, and also by engaging with a, a global health photographer and other colleagues who were external to our team to understand how we can do this in, in a way that is as impartial as possible. What is really important for me was the follow-on work that has happened. First, the reception of this framework, the feedback I've had from colleagues and people around the world who have told me this is exactly what we have experienced day in and day out. And the gratitude that people had for it to finally be spelt out and written about and talked about openly. And the second point was the piece of work that was published by colleagues um, subsequent to our work, where they used AI, artificial intelligence, to generate images in global health. Because of our work where we highlighted that the images that we as human beings select are biased, they thought maybe the AI system would have less bias. But in fact, their work demonstrated that the AI system just has exaggerated our biases to another level. Um, and so, again, it goes back to what I was saying. So the AI system could not recognize poverty as an issue or inequality as an issue in high-income countries. If you look at the images, and I know you're speaking to the authors of that work as well, but if you look at the images that the AI system generated from children in high-income countries uh, suffering or being in, in, in situations where they are vulnerable, they look Dickensian. They look like from another era. The AI system could not identify modernity and inequality in high-income countries in harmony. Uh, and that is that is dangerous, right? Because what the AI system thinks, we have eliminated inequality in our societies. And of course, we haven't. Inequality is increasing everywhere. Um, so it, it's, it's staggering. And for me, that has opened a whole new 
um, hosts of things that we need to address, particularly as AI and algorithms take them over more and more of our lives, including in medicine, is are we training the AI system to just replicate our biases or exaggerate them? And how can we step back? What are the ethics that we need to consider when we develop and train systems um, and and data that we give into AI systems? How do we ensure equity and ethics for that? that? These are really important questions, which for me, the imagery work was just scratching the surface. Exactly. And I did talk to Arseni about that, and I will have that interview on the uh, next episode of this. I wanted to talk to you first so uh, we could get a baseline and where this all, had all come from. So, And that was a really interesting conversation, too. So yeah. we, we got into some some really good topics. Would you um, apply an urgency label to this issue? Can you? Is, should in we? The, in the, with the fast-changing world in which we live and the influence of AI, I think there is an urgency to this. Um, for sure, In in for us to understand how we develop ethical standards in representation and inclusion, um, I also think there is an urgency to it um, in from a perspective of how we represent people in global health, because the imagery, like I say, is open the Pandora's box of issues, but it's also the most descriptive representation of the inequalities that run much deeper than just how we choose images of people. It speaks to how we treat people. It speaks to how resources are available to different people. It speaks to the inequalities in power in terms of, um, you know, this this concept of saviorism uh, and having the lower middle income country populations always depicted in a way that doesn't do justice to the reality of the situations in different countries. It also speaks for me urgently in how we are erasing the existence of inequality in our societies in high-income countries. Again, uh, imagery is so powerful, and we can talk about bias, um, which can manifest itself in so many subtle ways um, through data, which you wouldn't even discover until after you had applied the data to a clinical setting, for example, uh, and then done subsequent research on that to see whether the, yeah. it was biased or not. Imagery is right there. It's out in the open. You can't deny it. It's the most accessible way to demonstrate existing biases, especially the way we use AI. It's yeah. We're just reflecting what exists, the yeah. content that and we've already created. Very easy to brush it away and say, you know, well, you know, it's, it's, it's the only images that are available, but no, we have to do better. So one of the things is we want to work with organizations to recommission new images and remove these problematic images. You know, one of the um, biggest problems is, for example, the, the scandal around MSF and images that are depicting people who've recovered from war crimes, from, you know, child rape survivors um, are ending up on stock image libraries for sale. Um, so we have a moral responsibility when we take images of, I mean, think of yourself and me, how I would like my images and how sensitive we are and how we are represented as individuals in the worldwide web or on social media. Why does not that apply to every hu human being on this planet? 
Why is it that we have to have these differences in how we stratify who deserves dignity and respect and who doesn't? I've talked a lot about this to different groups and I'm very glad so NGOs and organizations have invited us to talk about our work, myself and the causes. And one of the people in one of these uh, meetings said to me, but you know, if we don't use images of children, showing them in in uh, in situations that are vulnerable, how do we then show the reality? How do we talk about the reality of lack of sanitation and hygiene in some places, or the lack of access to healthcare? And my answer is, I don't. We are not advocating for not using images. Images are powerful, also in a positive way. But what we are advocating for is that every human being that you see in a frame, you treat with the same level of respect and dignity and apply the same rule of ethics. We're not doing that. What I'm asking is if you go and take a photograph of a child, whether they're in New York, in a private hospital, or in London, or in Burkina Faso, or in India, you apply the same code of ethics. You apply the same code of consent uh, the same level of dignity and respect to that individual. We are not doing that. That is the problem. What have you not been asked about this that you think is important, if anything? What should our listeners take away from this and think about for the next coming days? What I would like is for us to be more open in calling out the use of, you know, I've been to so many conferences now and it's something that is in my, the forefront of my mind. And in fact, one of my colleagues just yesterday on LinkedIn reshared our paper saying she's just come back from so many conferences where she has seen this perpetuating practice of using images that are inappropriate. How do we break this cycle? How do we um, stop fetishizing the vulnerability of people who are black and brown and in lower middle income countries. Um, and that is something that I think we need to be proactive about. And uh, this framework, like I said, is just the beginning of the conversation. It was very, I was very glad that the Lancet series have taken this on board and have changed their editorial practices on how they use images of people as a result of this framework. I presented this work to a series of journal um, editors in Cell and Lancet and the reception was really positive. But it's a conversation we need to keep having. The fact that this framework was published in the journal is not enough. Right. It needs to be. Um, so we're now working to validate it. We're now working to make it more accessible. And we need to keep talking about this and um, just calling out the, the inappropriate pra uh, practices wherever we see it. In terms of what I have been asked that I should have been asked and I haven't, I think it's about what do we do next? How do we change behavior? Everybody sighs and laments and agrees with me, but it's okay. I can do something about this. I can stop using images of people the way I used to. I can ask my organization not to, you know, to change their um, their code of practice or to remove the images and, and commission new ones. Don't keep using your stock library images that are no longer appropriate, that are should not be used. Asmita Sharani, thank you so much for joining me on Respecting Health. This is really important stuff, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. Me too, and thank you for having us on, on this podcast. It's really important that this message gets 
through to as many different audiences as possible. We'll do our best. Thank you. Well, I think this is an excellent example of just how pervasive bias can be. It's right there in photographs and videos. We see it every day, and it seems normal. And once you think about it, though, these and other societal biases appear everywhere. At the top of the episode, I talked about the algorithms used to help digital content appear in searches and how everyone tries to duplicate the success of content that meets the criteria of the moment. Our societal biases are an algorithm, too. We constantly feed it, we reward it, and in turn it shows us what we expect to see. But society as a whole didn't get together one day and write this algorithm. The algorithm lives among us and it reinforces what has been asked of it. It shows us who we really are. And these have implications for human health, power, and capability imbalances as well as the planet's ability to sustain life. Thus, our values and our ethics are societal determinants of health. As Ismita noted, it's time to think about how to stop fetishizing the vulnerability of others. And I, I also loved her comment that when choosing images and how we represent people, we have to ask, who deserves dignity and respect? Doesn't everyone deserve that? Now, in the next episode, we'll hear from the researcher who looked at Esmita's work and wondered if artificial intelligence could undo some of the bias found in global health imagery. Respecting health explores our deeply rooted values and the consequences of our actions based upon them. We've looked at a wide range of ideas from a variety of perspectives. And we're not finished yet, not by any measure. Our values affect the way we approach our world and how we treat it and how any benefits are distributed. Everyone should have a voice in the things that affect them. We cannot create the world we want relative to our health and that of our planet without addressing our values. New policies alone won't fix it. Lastly, I wanted to share with you one of the books I've been reading that I think you might enjoy, and I highly recommend this book. Um, It was written several years ago, but it's still uh, just so relevant. The name of the book is Gathering Moss by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Gathering Moss. It's a fantastic blend of science, indigenous knowledge, and respect for the natural world. And if you want to escape from the latest up to the second news of which childish politician just insulted some childish billionaire who will probably throw a tantrum and then the algorithm in the sky insists you must absolutely know all about this, I think you'll appreciate this book. Again, it's called Gathering Moss by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Excellent, excellent stuff. Well, that's it for this episode. And if you have comments that you'd like to share or a guest you'd like to hear from, please uh, contact me by email at feedback at respectinghealth.com. And you can also leave comments on our website, respectinghealth.com. 
A big thanks as always to Adam Bazer for your critical ear and helpful suggestions. Hello, Adam. I'm Rod Pahovsky. Please join me again for the next episode of Respecting Health. And remember that when we respect ourselves, each other, the planet, the health of everyone and everything improves. 